the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy and ADF, the Alliance Defending Freedom. Here's another piece I'll trust you enjoy. Great pleasure to have Professor Eddie Glaude Jr. join me now. He is the author of the brand new bestseller, Begin Again, James Baldwin, James Baldwin's America and its Urgent Lessons for Our Own. Hello, Professor. How are you? I'm good, Hugh. How are you? Well, I'm different than I was Friday. I read your book. Uh, and I, I got to tell you, uh, uh, Eddie, some books just hit you like a hammer. And this one is one of those for a lot of reasons we'll talk about. But are a lot of people telling you that? You know, surprisingly, a lot of folks from across a variety of political spectrums, um, it's 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 been it's been heartwarming. It's actually uh, blowing me away, Hugh, uh, the response. Absolutely. Well, well I'll, I'll begin with an unusual question. I'll explain it. Have you ever read One Day in the Life of Ivan Denesevich by Alexander Solzhenitsyn? No, I haven't. Well, I read that when I was 13 or 14, and it changed my worldview because I didn't know anything about the Soviet concentration camps. And there's a scene where uh, Denesevich is laying bricks, which I'll never forget. It's sort of like the scene that you write in Begin Again, March 1968. James Baldwin is introducing Martin Luther King at the Disneyland Anaheim Hotel, where I've been a hundred times. And I have never heard of this occasion. I didn't know Marlon Brando and James Baldwin were friends. I didn't know this split had occurred. Would you tell people that anecdote so they will understand via anecdote what exactly Begin Again is? So, yeah, so this is King is trying to organize for the Poor People's Campaign. Uh, He's running up against uh, some opposition uh, because he's made a shift to talking about these economic realities and and, and bringing the poor to to Washington, D.C., Marlon Brando has been a supporter of the movement for a while, and him and Jimmy are really close friends. And um, uh, he invites King. He puts together this um, this fundraiser, uh, and and Baldwin was there in 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 California in L.A. working on uh, a script uh, for uh, the Malcolm X uh, film, the Malcolm X script, uh, which eventually failed, but Spike Lee eventually produces, um, and um, they begin to narrate. Baldwin is asked to introduce King, and he briefly introduces King, but he begins to narrate what has happened up to this moment, which has brought them to this occasion. And then King comes back, you know, follows him, and he narrates it. And in some, in some ways, Hugh, it's, it's, it's a narration tinged with sadness, uh, because they know that they're standing on the brink of a movement that is collapsing. Um, and they're trying to tell the story in such a way that it can't be absorbed. Uh, and to tell the story in such a way that they could, um, how can motivate people to continue to struggle for a better America? It's a profound moment. But this is what we talk about, right? Responsibility is not lost. Responsibility is abdicated. And if one refuses abdication, Baldwin says, one begins again. And if people don't know that story, 
I, I was busy yesterday telling a bunch of my friends who grow up in uh, the all-white environment of Catholic schools in northeastern Ohio. It's, it's a, a completely all-white environment, and I'm telling people, you got to read this because I've never read James Baldwin. I know about him. I've read his essays, but I've never read his novels. I stopped after 120 pages and watched If Beale Street Could Speak, uh, If Beale Street uh-huh. Could Talk, because I said I can't read a novel at the same time I'm reading this book. Would you tell people about the significance of James Baldwin? Because I assume, although my audience is very diverse and very large, I assume most people don't know James Baldwin, who you referred to just now as Jimmy, uh, <laughs> very well as all. I didn't even know people referred to him as Jimmy. Yeah, you know, so Baldwin is uh, a child of immigrants from his father, stepfather was from uh, Louisiana to New Orleans area, his mother from the Eastern Shore. Uh, they made their way to, to, to the north, to New York City during the Great Migration. Uh, Baldwin was born in Harlem, August 2nd, 1924. Uh, he wasn't born in Sugar Hill, Hugh. He's born in the rougher elements of Harlem. So he's not in that area where Langston Hughes and W.E.B. Du Bois are. He's born in the ghettos in some ways. Um, and, and, you know, went to uh, amazing high school, uh, uh, but uh, actually willed himself into being a writer. Uh, first book is Go Tell It on the Mountain, then Notes of a Native Son. Uh, these are in the 50s. He leaves the, I should, I jumped ahead. He leaves the States in 1948 because he's so angry. He feels that the rage in his father uh, is taking root in him. Uh, and he leaves and he goes to Paris, uh, just randomly he chooses Paris. And there he wills himself into being a writer, finishes the manuscript of Go Tell It on the Mountain and no, no, Notes of a Native Son. Eventually publishes uh, Giovanni's Room, one of the first one of the first novels, uh, Hugh, about same sex love. Uh, I mean, it's an extraordinary follow up to Go Tell It on the Mountain, uh, an extraordinarily courageous novel at the time. Um, uh, U.S. publishers refused to publish it, I think, and then publishes uh, you know Fire Next Time in 1963 and becomes this extraordinary figure who's interpreting America in the midst of this this racial crisis. I uh, goes south. Uh, in some ways, to sum up, Hugh, he, to me, uh, in terms of democracy and race, is the inheritor of Ralph Waldo Emerson. He's one of our best, most insightful essayists and one of our most extraordinary artists, in my view. Well, as I read this, as, I, as you introduced me to James Baldwin, I agree. I said, this is a guy who can move the needle. In fact, th- I want my honest sense, it's a very anti-Trump book. I'm not anti-Trump, <laughs> I'm pro-Trump. But I want people yeah. to understand, it's the first time I've confronted an anti-Trump argument that I have to respond to. You know, I'm typically dismissive of anti-Trump arguments. I don't think people are informed. They don't challenge what I know. I think they're, they're reflexive. They're often politically motivated. This is from the heart, and it's from an experience that I don't have, and therefore I have to argue back, or I have to think through it and respond and it, it, it's based on three concepts that Eddie uh, Cloud Jr., I want you to explain. The lie, the value gap, and witness. Those are the, as I am standing here right now, those are the big three. So tell me, what, give the audience a sense of what those are. So the lie is this idea uh, that America is the shining city on the hill, to use Reagan's um, uh, kind of reprisal of John Winthrop, right, of, of, of Winthrop. Uh, model Christian chair. And and this idea that, you know, black folk um, are in some ways less human. You know, there's this line that Baldwin says, and I'm paraphrasing, he says, 
that when the country was founded, it was founded by Christians, it was founded principally on the idea of liberty and freedom. But, you know, they had to reconcile the fact that they, in some ways, uh, they took these people and made them chattel. And so in order to justify that, that they were Christian and that they were founding this country on freedom, they had to say that these people weren't human beings. And they knew that they were. And but, but to admit that they were human beings was to admit to a crime. So by denying that they were they, they were not quite fully human beings, then no crime had been committed. And so Baldwin says in 1964 that that lie is at the heart of our present trouble. So the lie about black people, a lie about our capacities, the lie about how we've treated people of color across the world, and the lie that we tell about that history, right, in order to protect our innocence. This keeps us in some ways on that hamster wheel. Now, what's at the heart? What does the lie protect? The lie protects the belief that white people matter more than others. And to the extent to which we value white lives more than we do other lives, black lives in particular, right? We organize our society to reflect that, to reflect the distribution of opportunity, the distribution of advantage and disadvantage. So the value gap is at the heart of the empathy gap, at the heart of the wealth gap. And the lies that we tell about it protects our innocence, protect our innocence, right? And what we have to do by way of witness, and you, you're so right that these are three kind of pillars of the argument, Hugh. The witness is that we have to bear, we have to tell the truth about what we've done. We have to tell the truth about the suffering. As Jimmy says, we have to make the suffering real because we don't want to believe it because we want to protect our innocence. And part of what I'm trying to do here, Hugh, really quickly, if we can get this out from under our politics, then we can have honest arguments, right, without without attributing bad faith to our interlocutors. Because there's always the undertow that what's driving our political decision-making are these racist claims, is the value gap, is this refusal to acknowledge the lie. If we can get this from under our politics, then we can have honest arguments as conservatives, as progressives, about what constitutes the good, what no, constitutes Eddie, what the, are the best reasons? pathway. I think my audience, my center-right audience, will love your book, is that they are generally among whom you would call the innocent, but I genuinely believe them to be virtuous and to be attached to what you might categorize as the lie. I worked for Ronald Reagan. I worked for uh, the defeat of the Soviet Union. I was driven by anti-communism. But what your narrative is about doesn't take into account the complexity of the people that you would, I think, I, I don't know, there are categories of people who believe in the innocence of America. There are some who are driven by white supremacy. Hillary Clinton said on this show, we agree it's less than half a million who are actually hardcore white supremacists out of 330 million. But then there are people like me who just don't know your argument, have, have not lived this experience and say, look, w since 1933, we've been battling for the world. The America has saved the world, Eddie Gloud Jr., and Begin Again doesn't give us enough credit for that. And I think you would say, in love like Jimmy Baldwin did, you don't have a clue. Am I right? Yes. And, and, and the reason, and so there's a kind of, um, in some ways you don't have a clue, uh, in some ways because it's willful ignorance, right? Because, because we're so separated in our worlds. We don't want to know what's happening across the tracks, as we would say back home in the South. We don't want, you know, only thing we need to say is, oh, Black folk are, we, the wealth gap is a result of people not working hard, as if we didn't have a dual labor market, as if we didn't have a dual housing market, as if the New Deal didn't cut Black people out, 
as if there were policies, right? Policies that in some ways dictated how people's futures would, 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 would evidence themselves, right? So my daddy couldn't go to Princeton. Um, and, and he couldn't go, and my dad uh, is, is not an, an old man, right? He grew up in Jim Crow, Mississippi, and he raised me uh, in some ways in light of those experiences. So part of what we have to do is to confront the reality of who we are and what we've done so that we can imagine ourselves otherwise. See, that's what the book is really about. How can we get off this racial hamster wheel? Well, the first thing we have to do is tell the truth about what we've done and who we, who we really want to be. Now, I, I don't want to get too far off on the track here, but there are different Americas. And I, as I read this, I was thinking, what does Eddie think about, uh, for example, the Hewitts get here in 1868, right? We're from, we're from Ireland, and we go to work in the mines, and we go to Free State, Ohio. The Northwest Territory was never anything but free soil. My wife's family are Jewish refugees from the Hungarian Revolution who fight on the Union side. And, and I mean, they're just, we're free soil Lincoln people. What, how do you, the South doesn't enter into our world, into our imagination. California and Ohio are just not Alabama and Mississippi, however they good or bad they might be. I think you're the son of the South, and like Stuart Stevens, another friend of mine, uh, I think it overlays the writing, but you are not embittered by that. I think you're aware of that, but do you think I'm trying to let the North off too easily? Well, you know, this is the irony, you know, free soil. There's, there's this interesting moment. The Free Soil Party was not anti-abolitionists. So you get the, you get the split. Yes, right? neither so was this, Lincoln. In this, right, yeah. in this moment where you have Free Soilers making this argument, which is profound in terms of an understanding and conception of democracy, it's actually cut off from the, from the cruelty and barbarity of slavery. And so that gives you a sense of, of the divide. So I don't know if, because, you know, I think we, we tend to exceptionalize the South, Hugh. Um, it, even in Gunnar Myrdal's The American Dilemma, the argument is that if only, you know, the problem isn't our ideals, it's our practices. If we align our practices with our ideals, then we could actually make manifest the true, the true, uh, the true uh, destiny of American life. Uh, and that means that we need to get this region together, the South, when in fact we know that, the, that, that racism, that, that white supremacy in some ways saturates the country, right? It's not just a Southern problem, right? Uh, it's, 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 it's across the country in interesting sorts of ways. And I use the example of the Free Soilers to show, right, that even in that moment in which you have this extraordinary articulation of, of democratic commitments, it's still not tethered to a critique of what the institution of slavery represents as a distorting... Oh, I got that. Yeah, I, I, thought, I thought that was actually... Uh, the challenge is that um, you're saying to people who are quite proud of their abolitionist heritage, as I am, and of their uh, anti-racist family, as I am, that that's not enough. I mean, you're making an argument. And I've often made this conversation with people like Larry Arn of Hillsdale. Lincoln's second inaugural, you got this, you wrote about this, is prophetic (laughs) when he says... Yet, if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondmen's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, still it must be said the judgment of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. That might not mean the end of the Civil War. That might not mean the end of Reconstruction. That might mean 2020. 
That might be prophetic for hundreds of years. Am I right about you, Eddie? Yes, absolutely. It requires a reckoning, an honest reckoning, you know? Um, uh, okay. A kind about, of... Go ahead, I'm sorry. In that honest reckoning, you say something interesting about Trump. Trump, you say, has surfaced the key question, which is what about Washington? You're not eager to say anything good about Trump, but you give him credit at one place. You say, the president has said, what about Washington? And that is the key question. You provide an answer, Eddie, because I just don't agree with, with some of your arguments. But what do you make of the president's answer or question? What about Washington? I know what right, you answer, so, but tell the audience. Yeah. So, you know, part of what I say is this, that we have to tell the truth. Right. That is to say, we can't make them. You know, he wasn't just simply chopping down cherry trees. Right. He, you know, he was a complex figure, just like Jefferson was a complex figure, just like, um, you know, James Madison was a complex figure. You know, uh, there's there's a moment when John Adams says to King George, we will not be your Negroes. At that moment in which he's giving a voice to an idea of freedom is based on an intimate understanding of unfreedom. So what we have to do is get the facts right. Tell the story as best we can. Then the second thing we have to understand is the nature of the interpretation. What are we trying to do with those facts? Because telling the story, just telling the facts alone isn't, isn't sufficient, right? So those interpretations are put to, to work for us. So what does it mean to tell the story of, of George Washington and Thomas Jefferson as these complex figures who, who, who founded the nation, but who also were complicit in this, the, the underside, the underbelly of the country? Once we tell that story and, we, and that interpretation is doing the work, we also need to understand that for some of us who haven't had the choice to reject them, we will. And we will reject them, I think, and Baldwin argues this point, we need to be able to reject them so that we can accept them on our own terms. This is the way in which I read Walt Whitman, uh, Hugh. Oh, yes, um, I, yes. I love, I love Democratic Vista. It's one, of my, it's one of my walking books, right? I could turn around and grab it right now, right? But I understand when you read Leaves of Grass, in the early editions of the in the early editions of the poem, he's abolitionist. He's anti-slavery. You even have a black character in the poem. But by the time you get to the last edition, he's redacted all of it out because he rejects the idea that black people should be extended citizenship. Yeah. Yeah. He writes in Brooklyn that we're baboons in effect. So how can I come to Whitman on my own terms? I have to be able to reject him in order to accept him. So we have to deal with Washington and Jefferson, our founders, as complex human beings, not as soul, not as wholly virtuous or, or, or entirely evil. That would make no sense to me. Now, Eddie, I want to close by making sure people understand James Baldwin. This book is really a meditation on Baldwin and how it's impacted you and America, black America and white America and all of America. Uh, you give a lot of attention to his biography, that he leaves and goes to Paris. There was a note in here uh, that I had never known. In December of 1946, his close friend Eugene Wirth jumps off the George Washington Bridge. Now, I lost a college roommate at 22. It does change your perspective on life when you lose a close friend, at, at, at not to suicide, but to an automobile crash. And I, I was wondering, his whole life is marked by suffering. Does that make him unique among black writers in that, he writes more out of the suffering than he does out of his race? Um, no, he's not unique in that regard. Um, you know, one of the things we have to say is that, you know, Baldwin was a queer black man. And the relationship with Eugene Worth uh, was one 
uh, that is is thought to be that they were in love with each other. Um, oh, and, you didn't mention that. You didn't mention that. Okay, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there, there's, there's that 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 they were in love with you and they couldn't pursue it in some way. That's one uh, particip- um, a potential interpretation of what was going on. But I think something about. Let me put it this way, um, Hugh, uh, because I know we don't have much time. Baldwin says our suffering is our bridge. That if I can, if my suffering can lead me to connect with your suffering then somehow we may be able to connect with each other and relieve each other's pain and grow into being someone, uh, something better, a different kind of human being. This is the heart of the letter he wrote, for example, to Robert Kennedy after John F. Kennedy was, oh, what a was letter. assassinated. What a it, letter. Because they had had a collision. They had been in a huge argument, which I did not know about. Again, I didn't know anything about this. I came across this little note. It's about this size, right, in, in the archive, handwritten. Right to Robert Kennedy, and it's a note that basically says, "Our suffering, it will be our bridge because we're in the same, we're in the same, we're in the same life together." And yeah, so, all the difference, all the differences, we still can, in some ways, imagine ourselves being together differently if we're honest with ourselves. Eddie, I'm going to have you back to talk more about this, but I want to close by by asking about you and the book. The harshest review I've ever read is in this book on page two fifteen. Hilton Owls is writing about Baldwin's novel. Tell me how long the train's been gone. And he says, I mean, this is hard. Baldwin is found to be impersonating a black, has found impersonating a black writer more seductive than being an artist. I mean, that's searing. That's a terrible thing to write about an individual. Uh, So Baldwin, new pain, new rejection. What is the, is there a difference in critical reception for Begin Again in the African-American community than they're in the, in the white community. Are you getting static from one or the other or just praise? You know, it's, 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 it's a combination. You know, I, I, I'm still getting criticized over my refusal to, to, to uh, support Hillary Clinton. Uh, so that I still get, I still get hits for that uh, blamed in part for the election of Donald Trump. But I think the general consensus, Hugh, uh, is that James Baldwin offers us resources to make sense of our current moment and begin again helps us understand that. Um, and because I'm thinking with Jimmy and particularly the late Jimmy Baldwin, the Baldwin that is grappling with his own despair and disillusionment, he helps me deal with my own despair and he helps others. So I'm, I'm getting uh, the general response across uh, communities has been overwhelming. It's, it's, it's blowing my mind for a little country boy from Mississippi. Yeah, well, a little country boy from Mississippi with a Ph.D. from Princeton, who is, uh, <laughs> is a very accomplished writer. Uh, very quick last question. If someone wants to read Baldwin, where do you tell them to start? Oh, that's a great question. By the Library of America edition of his collected uh, uh, nonfiction writing. Um, and you can begin from the beginning. It'll start with uh, Notes of a Native Son, and you can literally just read him across his career from the beginning to the end. I think I would tell people to begin with begin again, because then you'll have a context and a frame that will fit the American current moment into it. Eddie Glaude Jr., congratulations. What an extraordinary book. And uh, come back and talk more about with uh, with me later. Thank you, Hugh. I really appreciate it, man. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Be well. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. Our program is coming today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. 
It's America's most unique graduate leadership program offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend to go to Town Hall Review and sign up as well today. This is Lon Chen of the Hoover Institution for townhall.com. A sweeping new national security law has gone into effect in Hong Kong, effectively ending the one country, two systems promise that had long governed its relationship with mainland China. The new law cements China's authoritarian rule over Hong Kong and limits many freedoms of the people there. For example, the law criminalizes a number of protest activities in Hong Kong if they are directed at the Chinese Communist Party or the Chinese government. It also sets up a unit within the Hong Kong police force that has the power to search properties and perform warrantless covert surveillance, all while using security personnel from the mainland. We've gotten used to scenes of democratic protesters in the streets of Hong Kong fighting for their rights and freedoms. Such scenes are now unlikely, given the severe penalties that the Chinese government will impose on many such activities. It's the sad end of an era in Hong Kong. The Chinese government's actions demonstrate they are committed to hegemonic control of their neighborhood. I'm Lan He Chen. The Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Impacting policy decisions today. Preparing public leaders for tomorrow.